Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Welcome to Bad Axe Podcast. I'm your host, Danielle Blinka. And I'm your co-host, Aaron. Bad Axe is brought to you by the Podmoth Media Network. Check out Podmoth for more great podcasts. You can support the show and get an entire year's worth of bonus episodes over at patreon.com backslash badaxepod. There is a link in our show notes and membership start at just $1. You can also support the show for free by leaving us a positive review and by telling a friend about us. Now, on to today's case. Today, we are doing another Halloween case from the 1980s, keeping it retro. And even though I normally like to do current cases, I feel like the 80s are having a moment right now. I mean, I think all of the decades, but now are having a moment right now, really, when you think about it. But yeah. Exactly. So, we're doing it. It's happening. We're escaping the here and now with some retro cases. Also, this case turned out to be controversial, so we are going to have a very adventurous ride today in terms of controversy. Anyway, we are going to Amarillo, Texas on Halloween 1981. The city of Amarillo got its name from the yellow wildflowers and yellow soil around the nearby waterways. Amarillo, or I should say Amarillo, is yellow in Spanish, but the pronunciation of the city's name has slowly changed to the non-correct Amarillo over time. Amarillo is the center of the Texas panhandle, and it's part of the Texas prairie lands, so it's very different from the type of landscape that we have here in southeastish Texas, or on the Gulf Coast, I guess I should say. It's also, though, just north of Palo Duro State Park, which I needed to mention because it's the second biggest canyon in the United States behind the Grand Canyon. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's like apparently very large. We should go there. We should. It's in Texas, so we could totally do that. Back in the 1980s, the city had a population of around 150,000. So it was a medium-sized city, although I will note that some people who are covering this case tend to note that it was like a small town at the time, but... These are the actual population numbers that the census had put out. So 150,000 people is not a small town, guys. So I'm not really sure why people are saying that. That's true. The downtown skyline featured high rises like a typical modern city already. Most of these buildings were built in like the 70s. Some of them were built even earlier, though. And also the central business district was in decline at that time. Many residents, though, were able to find jobs at plants and factories that opened around the city. And so, because of all these plants and factories, Amarillo has pretty much had a booming economy most of the time because there's so many, like, factory-type jobs. Fun fact, this is my last Amarillo fact. Apparently, Amarillo is very interesting, I learned. One of Amarillo's nicknames is Bomb City. And the reason for that is because there is a plant in the area that assembles and disassembles nuclear warheads. Wow. Yeah. I would not have guessed that. 
No, it is the only one in the country. Huh. Yeah, at first I thought it was just a really mean nickname. Like maybe somebody blew something up and they were like, it's Bomb City, which is totally inappropriate. Yeah, whenever you said like factories after that, I assumed you were going to say they had factories that frequently exploded because of Mm -hmm. safety issues, because Texas doesn't regulate anything. Yeah. But... Like when West Texas exploded, the city of West. And then at the time, Rick Perry was governor and he was like, oh, thoughts and prayers. Yeah. Rick Perry was doing thoughts. He meant it, though. Yeah. He was doing thoughts and prayers before it was cool. He really was. Anyway, yeah. It's not because anything blew up, it's because they have nuclear warheads that hopefully won't blow up. Hopefully so. Yeah. So back in 1981. 76-year-old sister Tadia Benz was living in the St. Francis Convent located at 4301 Northeast 18th Street in Amarillo. Originally from Switzerland, Sister Benz loved working in the convent garden, and she also worked as a seamstress. I was unable to clarify if this was as a seamstress for the other nuns at the convent or if she literally had a business, because I didn't think, like, I didn't think nuns had normal jobs. I thought they just mostly did stuff in service of the church. Yeah, I don't know how that works. I had, I had some nuns that were teachers. Oh, one, that's a good point. One of them was a principal. That's a good point. That's a very hard job. So maybe it just kind of depends on what's needed. Yeah. It was a Jesus school. Yeah. And most of the teachers were like non nun. They were not nuns. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm having like moments right now. Where I'm I'm remembering what we do in the shadows whenever <laughs> Nadja is so upset. And when she's like, we're going to ban the nuns whenever they take over as vampires and vampires are ruling. And she wouldn't have signs that said, no nuns, none. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So thank you for triggering that memory. Well, she liked to be a seamstress. So we know she was doing that. On Halloween morning of 1981... Nun and friend, Sister Angela Martinez, noticed that Sister Benz did not attend chapel that morning. And so her friend, Sister Martinez, went to go check on her to find out why she wasn't in chapel because that was not normal for her. She was the type of person who would always go to chapel, which to be fair, I think that's true. Probably all the nuns. But I mean, maybe there's some nuns that are like slacking. I was going to say, like, sick sometimes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm imagining, like, a, almost like a sitcom where there's, like, all the nuns are doing the nun things. And there's, like, that one nun that's just, like, slacking. And it's just yeah. like, eh, I'll pray tomorrow. Whatever. You know? I don't know. Okay. I can see that. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Well, she wasn't the type of nun to put off her, her nunliness. I feel bad because we're, like, I, I'm and to not intentionally talking about the nuns this way. It's just happening organically, and we don't have time to start over. So we're just going to have to accept it. Like, we are leaving town in the morning, so we have no time to fix this. All right, peoples. (laughs) So, being serious, Sister Angela Martinez went to go check on her. And at around 7 o'clock a.m. on October 31st, 1981, Sister Martinez climbed the stairs to the second floor bedroom where Sister Benz lived her life in service to the church. The door was closed, which was weird, because Sister Benz could not hear well. After all, she was 76, and a lot of people start having hearing issues over time. 
And so she always left her door open at night so that she would hear the morning buzzer go off because the convent has a buzzer that would wake everyone up at the appropriate time. And so she would leave her door open for that reason. And Sister Martinez says that she realized right away that it was weird, but she wasn't really thinking anything of it because they live in a convent. So she's not thinking there's an intruder or that people would break in or anything because Jesus, right? Yeah. So she opened the door to check on her and a horrible sight awaited her because the elderly nun, Sister Benz, lay nude on the floor with her arms spread out at her size. And as you probably figured out, she was deceased. Wow. According to Sister Martinez, she completely panicked. This sight was so shocking to her that she could not think straight at all. So she called her fellow nuns to come help, and they all concluded together that Sister Benz died in a fall. Okay. They did not explain their reasoning for this. Yeah, I'm confused. But this is what they thought must have happened. So they wrapped her up in a sheet to cover her because, again, she was nude, and this was, like, upsetting to them. Not, I don't mean that in a mean way. Like, it literally was just like, you know, they wanted to preserve her modesty. Yeah. And so they covered her up with this sheet and they cleaned up the spots of blood that they saw on her bedroom floor. She also had blood on her face, but they did not think that this was from foul play. They just thought this was somehow because she fell. So the local funeral home came and collected her body. Now, the funeral home staff apparently also did not question her cause of death. They just went ahead with all of this. That's weird. Shouldn't somebody be, like, taking a step back, maybe calling the cops? Or a doctor or something. Yeah, exactly. Like something, You would think. Somebody should be stopping to question this at some point. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that more in just one second. Yeah. So, the sisters went about their day, and they were obviously upset about losing their fellow sister. But as they were doing their daily tasks, they realized that they had a huge problem. About an hour, about an hour after the funeral home attendants left, Sister Florentine noticed that a window in the first floor community room had been broken and then unlatched. And this window was still open. Uh-oh. That's when they realized that someone had broken into the convent. And the sisters called the police to come and investigate. Officers arrived on the scene at around 9 o'clock a.m., which was two hours after Sister Martinez found Sister Benz's body. However, despite realizing that they had an intruder the night before, the nuns still believed that Sister Benz's death was just a coincidence and that she died naturally. So, alarmingly, they did not tell the police that she died. What? Yes. Okay, that that is real hard to believe. Like, I mean, that you mm-hmm. would be like, you're not going to tell the cops that there was a, you know, a a, a death in your yeah. in your place earlier today. Like, that seems kind of odd, don't it? It is, because even if you thought it was natural, wouldn't you say we didn't notice for a few hours because we were so upset about Sister Benz's death? Like, it's just weird that they didn't tell the cops. Yeah. So, the police started investigating this intruder situation. And fortunately, one of the investigators overheard the nuns talking about Sister Benz's death and inquired about what happened. And that's when the police were like, 
oh my god we need to investigate this yeah because this is a red flag yes it is yeah so they immediately blocked off the crime scene and started investigating her death and even though the scene had been disturbed they were able to recover some stuff so one they collected sister benz's sheets that were on her bed and her nightgown as well as a serrated steak knife that they found under her bed next to her lower dentures. Dude. Yeah. There was a whole knife down there. Ouch. Some sources refer to this knife as a butter knife, but all of the court documents say serrated steak knife. And that's important because as we will learn, this case is controversial and there are some people who support the convicted person and believe that he is innocent, and they like to refer to this as a butter knife. But I find that hard to accept when there's a lot of of sources that are actual court documents, various different court documents that all consistently call this a serrated steak knife. So that's what supposedly was there. Plus, I will note, this knife is bent, and usually steak knives are more bendable than than butter knives because they're more thick you know yeah so you can draw your own conclusions but i'll just tell you the court documents say it's a steak knife there were blood spots on the wall by the bed on the bed sheets and on sister benz's nightgown and according to the crime scene investigators the knife under the bed did not have blood on it but they say that a blood smear on the sheet appeared to be where the killer wiped off the blood However, this part of the evidence is, again, debated that whether or not you can conclusively say that this knife was wiped off on the sheet. Yeah. Not only that, though, investigators also recovered part of the cut window screen and also a second steak knife from the convent driveway. And the second steak knife appeared to be a match to the first one. Fortunately, these pieces of evidence gave up some important details about the crime. Techs were able to recover finger and palm prints from the knife that was underneath the bed, as well as the bed's headboard, and this gave the police some solid leads. However, the funeral home had washed away some of the potential evidence from Sister Benz's body by the time they got it. Because before the police were able to contact the funeral home, to stop the process of her being prepared for a funeral, funeral home employees had already started cleaning her body and had actually finished the arterial embalming. Oh no, they're going to mess up some of the evidence. Yes. So arterial embalming, quickly, just to tell you what it is, is the first phase of the embalming process. Well, it's kind of the first phase. You might count cleaning the body as the first phase. But the actual embalming part. And during the process, this blood... The blood is drained out of the body and replaced with embalming fluid. And then after this, they'll do the cavity embalming, which is where they take out the rest of the fluids. Anyway, I read a lot about embalming today and I'm upset about it. So <laughs> I can understand why. That does not sound like pleasant reading material. Yeah, I would like to send a shout out to all the morticians and other funeral home staff for being a friend to all of us. I wrote in my notes, thank you for being a friend like from the Golden Girls. Because huh. uh. I don't want to do that. And I'm so thankful that you are doing that. Yeah. So, thank you. That and the people that blur out the crime scene photos for all the true crime shows. Yeah. Because I like to watch true crime shows. Not a fan of the, of the crime scene photos. The other day we were watching one, and I guess because the victim survived a gunshot wound to the head, they thought it was appropriate just to show them find her on, like, the police 
vest outfits, whatever they're called. I forget. Body, cam. body cams. And I was like, I'm sorry. Why are we looking at this victim? Y'all don't have a blur? <laughs> like, I mean, I want to know what happens in the investigation, but I don't need to see this. Yeah, it was pretty graphic. It was very graphic. Anyway, so was the description of embalming that I read for you. So they had already done that first part, though, where they replaced her blood. Authorities had Sister Benz's partially embalmed body sent to the pathologist who was named Dr. Ralph Erdman, and he did an autopsy on her. Dr. Erdman found stab wounds to Sister Benz's chest and head injuries and neck injuries as well. And allegedly, according to Dr. Erdman, the neck injuries both showed manual strangulation and might have shown that the knife was held to her throat. Furthermore, Dr. Erdman found signs of sexual assault, including vaginal trauma and external bleeding, as well as sperm and prostate excretions. After doing the autopsy, Dr. Erdman found her cause of death to be manual strangulation. Oh man, that sucks so much. Yeah, so essentially, she was strangled, stabbed, and sexually assaulted. Wow. Now, I have some some notes here before we move on. One, Dr. Erdman later on was convicted of falsifying an autopsy in another case. Oh, wow. So, his credibility has been tarnished, even though it appears that he hasn't done anything wrong in this particular case. We don't can it for sure. Yeah, yeah. That's always sucky whenever you have that, that like that, cast. Yeah. it's like, well... Especially yeah. because the, this case has some problems because it appears to be a very good case against the person who was convicted. But at the same time, there's like things like this that create problems. Yeah, yeah. Now, one thing that I have to point out to you, though, before we move on, is that the medical examiner here found that there were stab wounds to the chest. Two questions. One, she was found nude. Nobody noticed that she was stabbed. You would think so, right? I know. I mean, like, right? wouldn't that be kind of noticeable? I, I mean, mean, maybe they just didn't look very closely because they were like, oh, I don't want to see nakedness. I mean, maybe so, but, like, you would mm-hmm. think that a chest wound, like, a chest stab wound would, like, yeah. leave a noticeable... Bleeding or something. Yeah, and, like, even if the nuns didn't notice, wouldn't the funeral home people notice yeah, that? Yeah, that's what I was hung up on, because I could understand the nuns probably don't want to look at their friend, because, like, if I found my friend deceased and naked, it's not like I'm going to stare at them and, like, examine every inch of their body, because I'm going to be upset, right? Yeah. But if you're the funeral home people, that's your job. You do it every day. Wouldn't you notice when you were washing the body that there was like a hole in it, a whole bunch of murder wounds, like yeah. like neck wounds and then stab wounds to the chest and then head injuries? Like, wouldn't you notice that? You would think so. And wouldn't that alarm you? Because, I mean, obviously the nuns in this situation did not commit any murders. But, I mean, it's not like they're not capable of it. I mean, what if the nuns all did it and were like, this is a natural death? And then, the, I mean, is the funeral home just going to not do anything? Yeah, good point. I feel like this is a red flag, guys. It is. I had a lot of questions about why nobody noticed these injuries. I feel like if I'm the police, I'm like, what? Now, people have complained about these police officers and have accused them of, like, rushing to solve the case, which might be true. But I would just like to point out that these police officers overcame a major hurdle of lazy police officer to even start this investigation because I feel like having watched Unsolved Mysteries, if they were Unsolved Mysteries cops, wouldn't they have like not bothered to eavesdrop on the nuns and 
go ask about it. Yeah, or they would have just been like, oh, hey, she fell. Isn't that weird? Guess I better yeah. not investigate. You know, like that. Yeah, I mean, half the time on Unsolved Mysteries, there's like an obvious murder that they're like, this is a suicide. We're done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so why would they be inviting more murders if they were just going to be lazy about it? That's true. Anyway, we can't answer that question for you. We're going to have to just move on to our next piece of information. So, fortunately, authorities had a chance at solving this case, even though it was started out rough, because they had that evidence, including fingerprints and palm prints on the murder weapon. I'm sorry, the possible murder weapon, because that knife may not be the murder weapon. We don't know. Some people insist that it's not, and some people say that it is, and that it was just wiped off. But we know there's no blood on it, so who knows? But that particular knife did have the finger, the, the finger and palm prints, and so did Sister Benz's headboard. And that matched someone. Their suspect was a petty criminal named Johnny Frank Garrett, who was just 17 years old at the time of this crime. Officers arrested Garrett on November 9th, 1981, about 10 days after the murder. I should note that in the, the 10 days that this happened, there were witnesses that had said that they thought they saw a dark-skinned Hispanic person there, and the police had originally arrested a Cuban immigrant that they later let go. Oh, wow. Yeah, they were able to rule him out because he didn't match the crime scene information. Yeah. The evidence, I should say. Okay, so Garrett's prints matched, and authorities say that they also found a similar steak knife at his home. It's unclear if this is related to the murder because later on, Garrett would admit to taking a steak knife from the convent kitchen, but he didn't admit to taking, like, a whole set. So it's not clear why it would matter if the steak knife at his house was the same, but that's a piece of evidence that the police collected. At the time, police believed that they had a second major piece of evidence because they also said that they matched Garrett's pubic hairs, or they found them consistent with the ones found at the crime scene. And at the time, in 1981, that was considered a science. However, we now know that visual hair analysis is a pseudoscience that's unreliable. So unless hair has DNA on it, it's not really that helpful, aside from like, oh, this hair is this color. Yeah, legit. Yeah, and so even though his pubic hairs might have looked like the pubic hairs, like, you really can't make any conclusions based upon that. Right, exactly. Additionally, though, officers also found eyewitnesses who saw Garrett running from the convent that night. Though, to be fair, eyewitnesses aren't that reliable. Also, I need to note here that Garrett's supporters have said that these eyewitnesses include someone who is allegedly a clairvoyant who said they saw a killer in the vision, in a vision that they had. And so if that is true, that is obviously not helpful at all. I mean, I'm not I, trying to say people don't have powers, but like in this case, in the court of law, that's not where you use them. Yeah, exactly. It's not evidence you can put into court. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I do believe that that it was included in the court evidence because it was in the court documents. So that was a question that I had that I really can't answer because the court documents just refer to these as witnesses, whereas his supporters have accused this as being like psychic people. Yeah. So it's unclear if the supporters are telling the truth or not. I can't discredit them. So either way, kind of make of what you will. Maybe it was a clairvoyant. The court documents don't call her that. Right. At trial, 
The prosecutor also presented testimony from a fellow inmate who said that Garrett confessed to him. Of course, you can always discredit like jailhouse confessions. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. We can't really say for sure, but I mean, obviously you have to include that testimony if it's there. Yep. However, though, Garrett did maintain his own innocence and he took the case to trial. He even testified in his own defense, which is kind of a big deal. And he told the jury his version of events. He admitted to going to the convent to rob it. He claims that he entered the building two days before the murder, hoping to find something good to steal. At one point, he said that he was there to steal a stereo. And another point, he said he was there to steal necklaces. It's unclear if he had a plan or if that's even really true. Rather than going through the window, though, he said that he walked through the front door at around noon during the day. And according to his story, he scoped out the medication room before going into the cafeteria where he picked up that knife. He says that nobody saw him as he entered the building and as he went into the cafeteria, which is very important, especially given the time of day. He says that he then went into several bedrooms and he used the knife to pry open doors and file cabinets. He said that he discarded the knife because it had bent in one of the locks. And so it just so happened that he had discarded the knife under the bed of a woman who was murdered. With a knife. Yeah. Yeah. As for the handprint on the headboard, he claims that he placed his hand on the bed frame to support himself while he reached over the bed to touch a cross hanging over the sister's wall that he claims that he stole. These details are in the court documents, though there are supporters of Garrett who say that his fingerprints weren't on the actual murder weapon, but a similar knife. And I think that's because there's some confusion about whether or not that knife under the bed was the murder weapon. Yeah. Like, there are some people that are like, oh, the the knife was with her body, but it was just discarded there. It wasn't the actual murder weapon. Whereas the police say it's because he had wiped the blood off. Now, we don't know for sure, because the police make mistakes. So maybe they did, but it does seem a little bit interesting that he just happened to do all of this in the room of the woman who was murdered. That's true. It is an awful coincidence. Yeah. While he was moving through the rooms, he said, he heard a noise, and that spooked him, and so he ran out. He denied raping and murdering Sister Benz. He also claimed this happened, like, two days before the actual murder. One of the other nuns who lived in the convent, a Sister Bernice Nogler, testified at Garrett's trial to to explain why this story was impossible. According to her, the front door is kept locked at all times. And if there's a reason for the door to be unlocked, there's someone there at the door the entire time that it's unlocked. Also, the cafeteria is really busy around noon because all of the nuns eat between noon and one. So there's always people moving around the area during that time period. So if he had actually come in when he said they would have for sure seen him because it's just impossible that there wouldn't be somebody there to see him. Yeah, which and makes that, sense. Yeah, I mean, and that's given if he got past a locked door and or someone at the door that was checking who came in and out. She also said that Sister Benz had never had a cross hanging above her bed and that there was nothing taken. So it seems odd that he somehow came in two days before and robbed the place and yet nobody had found anything missing And there was no cross that he could have taken. Yeah, that's also a good point. Mm -hmm. 
During Garrett's testimony, he also claimed that he had an alibi for the night of the murder. Because even though this is considered to be a Halloween death, she technically would have been murdered overnight between October 30th and October 31st. And he claims that he had gone to his mom's house that night at 10.20 p.m. and that he had stayed there all night. Sister Benz had been seen on the night of the 30th, so it's not like he could have killed her ahead of time and then, you know, just like gone and got an alibi later. So someone had to be at the convent at, you know, that night. Even though he says that he was at home, though, some of his neighbors testified, and one neighbor said that he was creeping around an elderly neighbor's house, and one person said that they saw him come to their home at around 11 p.m., which was after the time that he said that he was inside. So, obviously, he couldn't be at the convent at that same time, but it just goes to show that he was out and about, even though he claims that he wasn't. Yeah. At his trial, the prosecution presented an unsigned confession that Garrett allegedly gave to the police. In this alleged confession, authorities say that Garrett told them after his arrest that he had gone in through that broken window to rob the convent. And when he had entered Sister Benz's room, she opened her mouth to scream and so he strangled her. He then allegedly confessed to raping her after he strangled her unconscious before he finished killing her. Oh, hi. If you're looking for another spooky and funny podcast to add to your rotation, check out Anything Bones, now part of the Podmoth Network. Hey, Boneheads, I'm Sophie Schwartz. And I'm Caitlin Hart. And we're the hosts of Anything Bones, the podcast where we talk about bones and bone-related topics. Soph, what are bone-related topics? Thank you for asking, Caitlin. This can be anything from mausoleums to murderers, famous skeletons to cadaver dogs. Bone churches, mummies, serial killers. You'll hear about them all. And sometimes we have guests stop by and tell us their favorite bony tales. Check out Anything Bones on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever your little heart desires. We release new episodes every Saturday. Bone There's some important parts to think about here, though, because Sister Benz did sleep with her door open, and not everyone would. So whoever entered the building that night wasn't necessarily just coming for her directly. It is possible that somebody would enter the building and be looking from room to room and see an open door and go inside it. Yeah, just kind of like the easiest opportunity that was available. Yeah, and yeah. so that is something that stood out to me as he was telling this story, allegedly, because it, it would be a room that you would think to check because if all the other bedrooms, or most of the other bedrooms, had their doors shut and you have one that's open, you would peek inside. So it's possible that this version of events did happen because that kind of makes sense. We know there's a window that was broken into. We know that a knife was taken we know that somebody went into her room and that version of events does line up. The problem is that he claims that the police were sort of like telling him these, inf- these pieces of information they wanted him to say and that he was then saying it and that's why he didn't sign the statement. And unfortunately, we know that sometimes that does happen. Like there have been other instances where the police led someone in confessing and or try to feed people information. And he does have a low IQ. 
So it is possible that is what happened because his lawyer showed up and stopped him from signing the statement. And so it, it, we can't know for sure if that confession was legit. Right. But that is allegedly what he said. And I partly think that if the police were making up a confession, I feel like they could have made it a little bit better. Yeah, made it a little bit juicier. Yeah, yeah, that part did kind of stand out to me. But, I mean, we don't know for sure. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. We can't say for sure if that confession was real or coerced. Just because, again, this does happen. It does. In the end, the jury believed the prosecution's version of events and convicted Garrett of murder. At his sentencing, the prosecution argued that he was an aggressive man who was prone to violence. And he did have some petty crimes that he had committed before. On the other hand, his family argued that he deserved mercy, and he was very close to his siblings and his mom, and so they really fought hard for him to get mercy. But this is Texas in 1981, and she was a nun, and so... He didn't get a whole lot of mercy. No, he did not. They sentenced him to death. Wow. I will point out at this point that he was 17 years old. It's crazy to give... A mm-hmm. minor the death penalty. Yeah. And I mean, I know this is an awful crime. I ain't trying to oh, take yeah. it Oh, yeah. No, that, it for sure is. But 17-year-olds I mean, are children still. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying they shouldn't try him on as an adult because maybe they should. I'm but, I'm kind of pro that in some cases. Like, this probably is a situation where they probably should. But, like, death penalty, death penalty guys? Yeah. Mm, I think that's a bad plan. And it will become even more of a bad plan as we go forward. So, Garrett had several appeals denied. But there was one point that he thought that he could win because he claimed that untested semen in Sister Benz's body could have ruled him out as her attacker, but it wasn't tested. Now, in 1981, when this murder happened, the semen would not have been able to be tested for DNA, but it could give the attacker's blood type. Plus, if the sample had been properly preserved, it may have been tested for DNA later. What happened, though, is that the pathologist, Dr. Erdman, says that he used the sample while doing the usual test that you would do to like determine what the fluids were. And also later on that admit that there was a 70% chance that if he would have tried, he might've been able to find the blood type, but that he didn't know for sure because he thought the sample was used. Now, if you recall, Dr. Erdman didn't always tell the truth. So we don't know for sure if he's being honest about that. However, I do think it's important to note for future reference in this case that there are multiple court documents where it is acknowledged by multiple lawyers on behalf of Johnny Garrett that this semen sample was used up or, and or discarded during the autopsy, which is relevant for later. Okay, so after his conviction, Garrett continued to protest his innocence And he had a lot of supporters who pointed out that he was a petty criminal with a traumatic past, head injuries, and a drug dependency, and that made him an easy scapegoat. However, a forensic psychiatrist who evaluated him went an entirely different route. So he basically has two groups of supporters, some that say he's innocent and that they're scapegoating him because he has like a lower IQ and was easily tricked And a whole nother group that are like, oh, he is really messed up and that makes this sad and we shouldn't kill him. So Dr. Dorothy Lewis enters this story at this point. And she argued that Garrett suffered sexual abuse as a child and the trauma of experiencing this abuse caused him to develop multiple personality disorders. 
Wow, that is an interesting twist. I did not see that coming. Yes, and some of this trauma allegedly involved being used in child sexual assault materials. And the idea of having to like admit that was somehow worse than just being convicted of this crime and sentenced to death, according to this doctor. But it's important to note that this particular doctor, Dr. Lewis, thought like pretty much everyone who committed a really bad crime had a multiple personality disorder. And she was on TV going around talking about this. And like, this was like her celebrity moment where she was like the doctor that knew all about this. Yeah. I don't know for sure if she's the same lady that we saw in that one where the many faces of that. Of Billy Milligan. Yes, I think his name, Billy Milligan on Netflix. And if you have not watched it, you should, but prepare yourself for anger. So (laughs) I don't know if that's the same lady. And honestly, I just couldn't face looking at that, looking at that story again, because it upset me that this guy was like allowed to commit all these crimes while these people continue to defend, to defend him. And also there's people on there that are also committing crimes and getting away with them. And it's just like, just mind boggling. Anyway, I can't, I can't cope with it. So, <laughs> so basically that was her take on this. She decided that he had basically had two alters. One was named Aaron Shockman. And the other one was his deceased aunt Barbara. And you're probably wondering why his deceased aunt Barbara was an alter. But the reason why is because he had actually done an interview where he had said that his late aunt Barbara was talking to him in jail. Like she passed away, I believe like shortly after he was arrested and he said that he was seeing her talk to him. And most of the therapists were like, oh, that's because he has schizophrenia. And he had actually been having hallucinations since childhood. And that kind of thing. So that makes sense. But for some reason, Dr. Lewis was like, oh, that's because he is his, his deceased Aunt Barbara. Interesting. Yeah. So she kind of pivoted. There was a hard pivot there. Yeah. Now, back to the hallucinations, though. This part is like more important than the alleged personalities because this is his actual like psychiatric problems. Garrett's family and his legal team fought for years against his execution because of these reasons and because some of them believe he's innocent. But the Catholic Church actually came out on their side. I mean, that tracks. Yeah, because apparently the Catholic Church does not support the death penalty. Yeah. And so they came out and were like, I should know that because I technically briefly, like, went to Catholic stuff. I technically converted to Catholicism a long time ago and then did it for, like, a year and then stopped. So I should know this because I had to go to a whole, like, Catholic school situation. They make you learn. Like, it's like the adult version of CCD. I forget what it's called right now. But um, I went through that, so I should probably know this. But, yeah, so the Catholic Church is against the death penalty. So the Pope, actually, I think it was John Paul II, tried to intercede to get Texas not to execute this guy. The actual whole Pope. Damn. You know when they won't listen to the Pope that is... That, yeah. <laughs> like, only in Texas, man. They're like, nah. Yeah. So, the court accepted. This is the part that's wild to me. The court actually heard all these arguments, and they actually accepted that Garrett was brain damaged from several head injuries. One of these head injuries occurred when he was 10, when he fell off the house onto his head. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, like, we're talking serious. This was just one of them. This, we're talking serious head injuries. This is why he had some, like, mental deficiencies, essentially. 
Additionally, the court accepted that he was psychotic, likely schizophrenic, and that he suffered horrible abuse at the hands of his four stepfathers. Yeah. So he was severely beaten to the point that he had scars on a lot of parts of his body from beatings, including a scar on his hand where one of them had burned his hand on the stove. Where he, because he didn't do something they wanted him to do, they literally, this isn't court documents. This isn't like his family just saying it. Like, this is proven information that they had, like, entered into evidence. Because they had a doctor check him to be like, okay, well, if he was abused, we want to go over, you know, his, his body to look for evidence of that. And they did. And he had scars all over him from Dude, this abuse. That's so awful. Yeah. And, like, one of the stepfathers would burn him with cigarettes. And, like, he had cigarette scars on him. Like, his actual half-siblings were like, no, this happened. And so they found that, those scars. They know it happened for sure. And additionally, at least one of his stepfathers severely sexually abused him and even let his friends do it. So, like, this kid had a really bad past. Now, we're not trying to say that he should just be out of jail because, I mean, obviously he committed a terrible crime. But... At what point, how do you put a kid that's gone through all this and he's 17 years old on death row? Yeah, that's, 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 I don't know. I don't know how to. How. Yeah, that part is where it breaks down for me. So they also, this a court also accepted that he had started drinking at the age of 11 or 12, which had further damaged his brain. And there are, again, a lot of witnesses that testified to that. However, even though the court accepted all this information, the governor, the governor at the time who was Ann Richardson, had given him, like, a brief stay of execution, but his case had to go before the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles. And as you might conclude, from the, this was the 1990s when they went before them, they voted 17 to 1 against converting his sentence to life in prison. Wow. Yeah, and, like, keep in mind, it's not like it was, like, should he get out or not. It was, like, we'll keep him in prison forever, and just not murder him with, with the death penalty. And the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles was still like, nah. So his death sentence was carried out by a lethal injection on February 11th, 1992. And he was just 28 years old at the time. Man, that's... We're not actually done, though. Oh, okay. So the, Oh, wait, there's like there's, way more. There, wait, there's more. Oh, yeah, there's a lot more. Okay, so that that is like part one of this. We're not done because Garrett still has a lot of people who support his innocence. And they have pointed out evidence that shows he's not guilty, but the police deny the existence of some of it. A lawyer named Jesse Quackenbush has made a name for himself by advocating for Garrett's innocence. And he claims that there is a lot of evidence showing that Garrett is innocent. But... I had trouble finding corroborating records for that evidence because he actually made a whole documentary that's called The Last Word, a documentary. And he claims in that documentary at one point, allegedly, that there was like DNA that showed that it wasn't him. But we know that all that evidence was destroyed. Yeah, there was no DNA. Yeah. So how did this miraculously appear? That part was confusing to me. But also, I couldn't find any other documents to support any of this. It's just kind of like what this, what he claims he's found. But there are bloggers who've taken this up. There's like a lot of people who have heard of, like, have watched the documentary and then have gotten involved and are like posting blog posts of like, oh, there's all this evidence that 
shows like the oh we this other witness saw said this and the clairvoyant thing came into it and it's really hard to know if somehow i guess i guess it's possible that like the police hid evidence but is that what's likely because you're that people are kind of buying the whole break-in story despite the fact that a very credible nun explained why that's not possible and isn't reasonable to believe that this this kid went into the, the the convent two days before the murder occurred and just happened to leave his fingerprints and a knife in the victim's room and her dentures were like right next to it like so she would have seen it if it had been there for two days probably yeah like yeah. that is confusing as to how that's possible that all of these things just happen to fall into place yeah. and that there were two separate incidents in a convent within two days yeah like unrelated incidents yeah unrelated know? incidences yeah. and we'll get to an alternative suspect because there is an alternative suspect i feel like i should mention that right now because that is partly what makes this case so muddy but at the same time i feel like his fingerprints on the knife and the, the headboard and him admitting to leaving them there is very notable to me. Yeah. I don't necessarily believe the confession because I do believe that it's possible that that was made up by the police. We know that those sorts of things happen. Yeah, but I, I do think that everything taken together, I really do believe that he is the killer, but I don't think he should have been executed, period. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay, but let's get to... I have to tell you a note about Quackenbush, though, because he has been, like, really... Like, talking about how he thinks that Johnny Garrett is innocent and has all these, these like, evidence and stuff. But I have to note something that I feel like kind of makes me question his credibility. And it's that he also defended his daughter in her own case. Like, not, like, legally, but in the media after she was accused of a crime. And this is what happened, y'all. Y'all are going to want to hear this. So his daughter's name is Katie Quackenbush, but she goes by the name Katie Lane because she's trying to be a country singer, okay? So in 2017, she was living in Nashville as an aspiring country singer, and she was accused of shooting a homeless man. This is what happened. On the night of the incident, Katie pulled up in her Porsche SUV next to this homeless man who was sleeping on the sidewalk. It was 3 a.m. in the morning. The man, Gerald Melton, yelled at her, complaining of her loud music and the exhaust from her SUV. Katie's passenger rolled down her window to see what he was saying. I also want to note that Katie was 25 when this happened. Now, the passenger told the court that she rolled down the window to hear what he was saying and said that she had not been afraid of Gerald Melton, who was the homeless man. Now, I do have a question here. Of show of hands, I can't see you, but I, f I can feel you. Not because I'm psychic. Well, I mean, who knows? But you know what I mean? Just in general, because I know what you're going to feel like this. If you were being yelled at by someone who was on the side of the road at 3 a.m., whether or not they were unhoused, would you roll down your window to interact with them? I wouldn't. I can tell Absolutely you not. And yeah. we live in Houston. I've had so many homeless people yell at my car. You, you don't know that makes it so much worse. And also usually you're going to be fine because if they're yelling at your car, I had a homeless guy try to run out and kick my car one time because he was having some problems. He was either on drugs or he had severe mental illness, which I was aware of. And so I 
did not fault him because he didn't, I don't know what he thought I was doing, but regardless, I minded my own business because he's having a crisis, right? You don't exacerbate the crisis. I'm just throwing that out there. If you're afraid, I just, I'm trying to imagine a scenario where it makes sense for you to roll down your window to talk to the guy at 3 a.m. Yeah, there's not one that I can see. Yeah, so according to Katie and the passenger, he yelled offensive things at them. And Melton does not deny this, does not deny yelling offensive things at them, which makes sense because I feel like anyone's going to yell offensive things at 3 a.m. Okay, so he claimed, though, that they laughed at him and that Katie turned up the music when she realized that the music was upsetting him. He also claims that Katie asked him if he wanted to die that night. What? Yes. Now, again, this is his version of events, so he could be exaggerating. We all know. I'm not trying to, to say that he's only telling the truth and that she's not, so it's, there's probably something in the middle that's correct. He then says that he turned and walked away from the car. According to Melton, Katie then got out of the SUV and shot him. What? Yes, she shot two bullets at him, and one, of the, one or both of the bullets hit Melton in his side. Dude. Yeah. After the shooting, though, Katie and her friend left and went to Taco Bell before going back to her house. What? Yes. And fortunately, there was a passerby, which I think was a security guard, who helped Melton and called the police and got him medical care. Well, that's good. Okay. Now, the police were able to identify Katie, and she also had a lawyer call to, like, turn her in or whatever. And she claimed that she shot him in self-defense. Um, yeah, that she was scared and he was threatening her and she shot him in self-defense and that she didn't know he was injured and that's why she just drove away and didn't do anything to help. What? Yeah. I, I, this story is unbelievable. Uh-huh. So the part where it all breaks down for me, there's two parts. One, why did you roll on your window if you were scared? But two, the part where it really breaks down for me is she left him with the Taco Bell. Yeah, the Taco Bell is weird. Yeah, because even if, like, let's be serious, even if she didn't think she hit him with the bullet, which I think you would notice that someone was shot, but whatever. Even if you, for some reason, didn't notice that he was shot. Because, like, just giving her the benefit of the doubt, if she was scared and, like, fired from her car or or something, because, I mean, driving away is an option, y'all. But, like, if for some reason she felt like she needed to shoot him before she drove away, wouldn't you at least feel shocked and horrified I wouldn't go to Taco Bell after that. Yeah, I would be traumatized. Yeah. I'm an emotional eater, y'all. And I still, I would not want to eat. I would be, like, shaken up. Yeah, I would. I don't think I would have an appetite after something like that. I mean, you guys can, like, comment if you disagree. But I don't think it's normal to just be fine after you shot at somebody. Nope. Anyway, she claims it was self-defense and she didn't have any idea that he was hurt. And her father believed her and went on the media to go tell everyone about his daughter was, was innocent and was doing this in self-defense, etc., etc., etc. So I'm just saying, he might not be the best advocate to have for yourself when he apparently will just say whatever. Yeah. Also, a jury later found her guilty of reckless endangerment, but she was acquitted of her attempted first-degree murder charge. Wow. Which I think that she still should have at least gotten attempted second degree or manslaughter or something. Yeah. Also, she has not yet been sentenced. She wasn't, she was actually, this happened in 2017, but her trial happened in April 2022. She was out on bond for those whole like five years. And then she also keeps having her sentencing hearing moved. And I feel like these are tactics because her dad is such a higher powered attorney that at 25, she's powering around in a Porsche, a Porsche SUV at that 
Yeah, legit. I was like, I'm sorry, what? She's an aspiring singer and she's like driving a Porsche, but okay. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that just to me made me doubt his credibility. But back to Johnny Garrett's supporters. Garrett's sisters, Gina Weaver and Janet Dobbins, support his claims of innocence and have even fought to clear their brother's name. As support for his innocence, they have pointed out that a similar murder occurred at the same time of Censor Benz's murder. That was the murder of 77-year-old Narnie Bryson, and it happened about four months before Sister Benz was killed. Bryson was beaten, strangled with a telephone cord, and sexually assaulted in her home in Amarillo, Texas, again, four months before Sister Benz's murder. This crime went unsolved for decades until 2004, when police matched DNA recovered from her body to Leoncio Perez Rueda, who was a Cuban immigrant. This Cuban immigrant was friends, possibly roommates, with the original Cuban immigrant who was arrested briefly but released in Sister Benz's murder. Interesting. Yeah. To be fair, though, it, it, he had been totally cleared, and he was only rounded up because he had dark skin. So, I mean, make of that what you will. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly an interesting detail, but at the same time, it probably not important. It doesn't prove Let's be honest with ourselves. Yeah. Okay. So, Ruido had also committed other crimes, including being a peeping Tom, which is how he got on the radar for this. And even though he is Cuban, so you might think of, like, as him being, like, brown Hispanic man, he's actually black, whereas Garrett is white. Now, if you recall, some witnesses said they saw a dark-skinned Hispanic man, but being serious, when I saw a picture of Rita, I thought he was just, like, just regular, like a black person. And I didn't realize he was Hispanic. So I don't really think that you can use that as a, like, some people are saying, like, oh, well, some people saw a Hispanic man, and he's Hispanic, that's conclusive. And I'm like, not really. Because, honestly, if you saw this guy, you would think, oh, there's a black guy. Also, being serious, it's 1981, and I don't know that describing, um, oh, I saw a dark-colored person in the area of the crime afterwards is, like, really that helpful that's because true. of racism. Yeah. Just being serious. That's true. Okay, so that I'm not sure about. Breda, though, had been a suspect in Bryson's murder because two weeks after she was killed, he was caught as a peeping Tom watching another elderly lady who, like Bryson, lived alone. Weird. Yeah, which appears to be a pattern. So the police had arrested him for watching that lady and they said, hey, we had another elderly lady killed two weeks ago. I wonder if it's that dude. And he had been like, no, I didn't do it. But it's 1981, so they weren't able to to test his DNA yet. So in 2004, they got that match, and they brought him in. Even though it was 33 years after the crime, they were like, we solved it. So in 2005, which is about a year after they arrested him, he confessed to her murder and received a 45-year sentence. Now, obviously, as soon as he was confirmed as Bryson's killer... People who supported Garrett were like, these crimes are the same. He probably killed Sister Benz and we should prosecute him. But there are some things to consider. One, if he's confessing to one murder, why wouldn't he just confess to both murders? That's true. I mean, he's already going down for murder. Yeah. Two, there are some differences. So we know Sister Benz was stabbed and manually strangled. Whereas... Our other victim, Miss Bryson, was beaten 
and then strangle with a cord, which might sound, I mean, it is similar, but it's not really the exact same. You know what I mean? Like it, it's, it's kind of hard to, to know whether or not that yeah, is meaningful. It's close enough to be similar, Suspicious. but it's different enough that it could be coincidence. Yeah. And also Rueda had been targeting women who were living alone. And then you have sister Ben's living in an entire convent with women. Also, part of it for him, based on his peeping Tom arrest, which happened after the first murder, so that wasn't like an escalation, he liked to watch his victims, and she was on the second floor, you know what I mean? So it's not impossible for him to watch her. But it's a lot harder. Yeah, and it's not like he would have been able to easily get in the building and look around it to, like, figure out who's in what bedroom and, like, how hard it would be to be into different rooms. So it's not impossible that he did it. It just seems that... As much as it is a very similar crime, it's not like a dot for dot to the point where you're like, oh, for sure, these have to be the same killer. It seems like a more like a thing where it could be the same killer, but we don't know for sure. Yeah, legit. Yeah. So that, to me, there's a lot of really gray, gray parts between those two. Now, there are a lot of Garrett supporters who believe that there was DNA evidence on Sister Benz's body that matched Rueda. And that information is passed around a lot online. However, if you recall, the evidence, that evidence was gone, according to the trial's transcripts. So we don't know for sure. Now, there are people working to try to clear Garrett of any wrongdoing. And in order to be cleared, the attorney working on his behalf, or on behalf of, the Garrett, of his family, would need to show that there's evidence of his innocence and that there are items from the crime that would be tested for DNA. And also these items can't have been mishandled or altered in any way, which is a little unfair since, you know, the crime scene people didn't do such a great job. Yeah. However, it seems like that's going to be a high bar and his appeals attorney, whose name was Jeff Blackburn has said that he is convinced that Garrett did not sexually assault Sister Benz, but he's actually not totally sure about the murder. So you can also kind of make of what you want with that. Two separate films have been made about this case. The first was that documentary I told you about called The Last Word, a documentary, which was made by Quackenbush. And also another movie, which was a fictionalized horror movie, was made about the documentary And this one was called Johnny Frank Garrett's Last Word. And basically, the movie assumes that Johnny Frank Garrett was innocent and that he wrote down a curse before he died that he placed on the people who convicted him. And then the curse killed some of them. And then in the movie, they added that a juror, like, tried to make things right to overcome the curse before it got to him or something. Interesting. It doesn't sound like a good movie. It does not. It's a... Yeah, I spent more time than is reasonable (laughs) looking at stuff about these movies. And I was going to watch them, but then I was like, this sounds kind of bad. So... Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you could totally go watch it if you want to. Apparently, some people liked it, but there were other people who thought that it was more of a drama than a horror movie. So, be prepared for that. (laughs) Since her death, Sister Benz's room has been turned into a chapel, and the sisters in the convent, although I will be admit to you right now that I did write coven in my notes, I just realized. <laughs> so now we all know where my thoughts were, apparently. The sisters in the convent keep a candle burning in her memory at all times. 
That's really sweet. Yeah, it really is. I mean, to be fair, I got that detail from a slightly older article, so maybe that's changed. But regardless, it sounds like they do a good job at remembering her. And this whole case was really sad because Sister Benz was just trying to do nice stuff. Yeah. Like, she seems like such a really nice person. I mean, I mean, not that it's any less sad if somebody else gets killed. I mean, I'm really sad about Miss Bryson as well because I feel like maybe I, I was going to spend more time on her case, but just being real, we're leaving town to go to a wedding and we barely had time to record this. We are like very tired. So I'm sorry this episode is probably going to have some extra like issues in it because I'm not going to have a time to fully edit it <laughs> because we have to leave town. But also don't come over here and try to take our cats or anything because we have someone watching them (laughs) like we have we're responsible parents who have people come over so yeah anyway uh i thought you i hope you think this case was interesting i thought it was interesting and i am still like (laughs) i thought it was very interesting there's a lot of twists and turns in this Mm -hmm. one i i did not see some of that stuff coming yeah like i got i started to feel defeated like like uh, when I was getting really close to the end of it because of the fact that I know there's people who are so convinced that he is innocent. And as much as I do think that shady stuff goes down, I definitely don't think he should have ever been executed. I just do think that he committed the murder. Yeah. What do you think, Aaron? I'm inclined to agree. I mean, I think the his version of events doesn't quite line up with facts you know what i mean yeah and like i think that's really what what sells me on the idea that he probably did mm-hmm. do the murder you know because it, it just seems really unlikely that you know that he would have been able to get in without anybody seeing him that there would have been a second crime within two days mm-hmm. y- you know like nothing was reported missing nothing was reported missing that like she didn't notice the knife for two days like all of that just seems really unlikely you know and so i'm inclined to believe that he did do the murder but i i understand where people are coming from when they're saying hey something is weird here Mm because like there's a lot of fishy stuff that went down as well yeah a lot of fishy stuff and i definitely don't think he should have been executed i mean even even if he had like confessed and had just been like yeah Yeah. to do this i still don't think he should have been executed i don't think that anyone who's under the age of 18 should be executed period yeah i agree like, I know that he was an adult when they executed him, but I think if you commit a crime when you're... Actually, I, don't, I mean, I don't really fully support the death penalty. I don't I just, support it. Yeah, I just... Th- I, there are some cases where, like, I'm like, I can see why that was the, the, ch- the way that they went, especially, like, we've talked about some of those cases before, and I'm, like, less inclined to argue about it. And I could conceivably see that, like... I feel like I can be convinced, I guess, in certain, like, cases, depending on the situation... But in general, I don't support it. And I especially don't think that someone who's this young or this damaged should be able, should be put to death. That's crazy. Yeah, I agree. And I I do think, I think it was an injustice and I understand why his sisters are so upset. I just feel like it's kind of hard to think of him as being completely innocent when it kind of does seem, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like in this case, the, the fingerprints are very convincing to me. His alternative version of events, yeah, makes me more more convinced of his guilt, ironically. And I know that he claims that the knife bent with him breaking into stuff, but we know that Sister Ben's left her door open. And also, it's a, it's a convent. It's not like an apartment complex or something where there's a lot of locked things. 
And we know that some knives bend when you're stabbing someone, too. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, is it possible he had wiped it off like the police say? I mean, they could be lying. We know that sometimes they're like, oh, yeah, I know all the things. Yeah. Like, we've, I think we've all watched one of those crime documentaries where the cop does an interview and is like, I'll have this innate sense about evidence or about when a person's lying. They always sound like that when they say it, too. Mm-hmm. I have an innate sense inside. And I'm like, you fucking don't. What you're describing there is you and the psychic both have the same power. And so if you think the psychic is not telling the truth, you can't also have that. That's true. I have an innate power. <laughs> when I talk to the suspect, I know if they're guilty. What you have is an ability to railroad people, and you should probably not do that. What you're relying on there is bias. Yep. <laughs> Please stop. You're ruining our justice system. You don't have it in eight cents. I promise. Anyway, let us know what you think about this. It ended up being way longer than I wanted it to be, and... I appreciate all of you. Thank you for listening. And please follow us on social media. At some point, we'll be posting there again. Email us. We have an email. It's badaxpod at gmail.com. Also, our social media handles are at badaxpod. It's really easy to find us. Yeah, just look for badaxpod. Yeah. Also, the the website is just badaxpod.com. It's a great website. You should check it out. It's an adequate website. You should check it out. And did I forget anything, Aaron? The Patreon. There's a link to that in our show notes. There's a lot of other stuff over there. Yep. And there will be some more Halloween excitement there as well after after we are settled back in. So you can totally go and peruse. Oh, you know what I just realized? Because I worry about us telling people we're going to be gone. We won't be gone really that long after this comes out, though. Because we're recording this in advance. That's true. Cool. Don't come over here. We love you, but, but please don't come to our house. They don't know where we live. In theory. They better not know where we live. Now I'm all paranoid. We're going we gonna to be moving. <laughs> You're making me paranoid. <laughs> I appreciate all of you. And, okay, let's, we're going to wrap it up. We're both very tired. We appreciate you. I think I've said that 20 times now. And please have wonderful weeks. Bye-bye. Bye.